Um, I'm going to start out reading a passage from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and this is like part two of last week. It's the same chapter, We're picking up the narrative on Easter Sunday, um, right after Jesus has encountered Mary in the garden. Uh, we're going to read through this here, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad and they saw the, when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So ends the reading. I'm going to come back to this passage in a second. I want to tell you a story. There's an oceanographer in the United States named Andreas Moonchow. And in 2010, he was asked to go in front of Congress and sort of give his expert testimony on a strange event that had happened. In 2010, uh, an ice chunk this five times or four times the size of Manhattan, New York, had broken off the Peterman Ice Shelf in Greenland. And Congress wanted to know, is this a result of global warming? So Andreas Moonchow, he went in front of Congress in 2010, and he said, the evidence doesn't conclusively prove that this specific event was global warming. He was doubtful about global warming. But two years later, another ice chunk, two, sizes the, two, size, two times the size of Manhattan, New York, broke off the Peterman ice shelf again. And Moonchow, even though he had doubt about global warming, began a project of studying the ice shelf. Uh, gathering data and monitoring, monitoring temperatures above the ice and below the ice in the water. And he knew that there were these specific data points that he was looking for in order to be convinced that global warming was the cause of this specific phenomenon. And so he became really attentive to data. And as he collected and he reviewed the data from his arduous journeys to Greenland over the next several years, his doubt in global warming sort of melted away, right? Uh, he, his only uncertainty now is just how fast this ice shelf will melt. How fast will it go? Now, his process of becoming a believer in global warming, it included something that I'm calling attentive doubt. 
attentive doubt, not wanting to form an improper conclusion prematurely that global warming existed, he became attentive to any evidence that suggested it was a reality, even though he still had his doubts. And I think we're all a little bit like Moonchild sometimes when it comes to faith in God. Like the disciples and especially Thomas in our passage today, we often nurture attentive doubt, a doubt that waits for signs or evidence before believing. And revealed in our passage today is this phenomenon that was true for the early disciples. I think it's been true for Christians throughout history. I think it's probably true for you and true for me. And it's this phenomenon that attentive doubt over time plus the presence of Jesus equals greatly increased faith. So watchful doubt, attentive doubt, doubt that's looking for evidence of God's activity over a period of time coupled with the presence of Jesus could really catapult us into great faith. Now, I am saying that doubt can be the soil out of which great faith grows, but we often think of doubt as the enemy. How many of you guys have thought of doubt as the enemy to your faith at some point? Yeah, we, um, we may see doubt as our enemy, and city churches over the years have expressed that they feel guilty about their doubt. They've said, you know, to me, sort of in secret, you know, all these other Christians just seem to accept these, you know, tenets of orthodox faith, and I still have questions, I still have doubt. Why can't I just believe as easily as, you know, these other people do? Um, perhaps you don't relate to that. Perhaps you don't struggle with doubt. Um, Jesus says, you're blessed if you don't struggle with doubt. Like, you're fortunate. You don't have to carry around all that angst and doubt, you know? Um, but doubt, your own doubt may not be your problem, but maybe your problem is other people's doubt. Maybe you get nervous when you hear other people ask questions about faith or concerns or uncertainty. Uh, maybe you get nervous that their questioning is going to poke holes in what you believe, or it's gonna undermine your beliefs, um, or maybe you're afraid this person's gonna walk away from the faith if they have these doubts. Many expressions of American church culture actually just seem allergic to doubt. Like somebody walks in and they have questions and we're like, let's set them straight ASAP. You know, they need to know what to believe. This is such a real thing, guys, that so many city churches over the years have told me, like, I didn't feel like I could even be honest in that church community about the doubt that I had. I didn't feel like I could even say the questions that I had. And so even though we might mistake doubt as the enemy, attentive doubt, watchful doubt that looks for assurance over time is actually the soil from which God grows great faith in our lives. So I want us to turn back to the passage and just see what's happening here. And the Gospel of John is often attributed to, to John, Jesus' very close disciple, or at least his own disciples who wrote this down for him or wrote down the stories he wrote. Um, he wrote this to pass on words and stories and accounts of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And it's written to an unnamed audience uh, from the first person, from someone who claims to have been an eyewitness to everything Jesus did. And the author writes, to you, the reader, so that you might believe in Jesus and not doubt his testimony. Now, presumably, first century Christians read this letter, and first century Christians throughout the Roman Empire, they were dealing with a lot of persecution, 
from religious Jews who thought they were heretics, from Roman authorities who were persecuting them, didn't want Christians serving any king but Caesar. And John's letter maybe is written to console them, to say, like, you are, you are really believing um, the right thing. Your, your belief in Christ is well-founded because he and others were eyewitnesses of the life and death and resurrection. So what we see happening in our passage last week and today is John's account of the way various people overcome their doubt. What are the ways that you have had to overcome doubt? Let's just pay attention to how this works. Um, last week on Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene is at the empty tomb. She's worried, she's freaking out, but then Jesus meets her and she believes, right? He meets her. The disciples, Peter and John, they run to the tomb and they're frantic because the tomb is empty. The narrator tells us something weird. John believed, and then the narrator immediately says he still didn't understand the scriptures, that Jesus was going to be resurrected from the dead. So there's something up. Like John has some belief, but he still doesn't understand. He still has doubt. He's kind of on this weird spectrum. And then doubt, uh, doubt uh, still continues. Mary goes and tells the disciples, hey, I've seen Jesus. I've spoken to Jesus but their doubt keeps them from rejoicing. They're locked up in a house wherever they are, afraid that who, the people who crucified Jesus are going to crucify them as well. They're afraid of what happened to Jesus, that it will happen to him. So they're hunkered down. They know about an empty grave. They know about this unreliable testimony from a woman. Women were not considered credible witnesses in a court of law at this time. Um, so they really don't have much to bank on here. And then Jesus appears to them in his resurrected body he walks through a wall or he teleports we don't exactly know how jesus does this and he says peace be with you calm down it's okay don't be afraid and he shows them the nail scars in his hand and in his side he shows them his war wounds you know the evidence of what he's been through it's really jesus and we're told the disciples are glad right and then Jesus has this moment with them where he's like commissioning them to go out into the world. He's saying, you know, as I was in the world, I'm going to send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Take my spirit with you on the journey. And he reminds them of this ministry that they are going to have of um, proclaiming forgiveness of sins and calling people to repentance. But we learn that Thomas, Thomas the twin, was not there that day. He missed it. And Thomas, presumably an identical twin, I know we have an identical twin in this room. Uh, I don't know who that could be. Um, you might have to figure it out, guys, after service. We have an identical twin here. And identical twins know that at sometimes you have to look for more specific evidence of someone's identity, right? Maybe Thomas had been mistaken for his brother before. Maybe Thomas knew, you know what, my brother has a freckle on his left elbow. And nobody knows that except for me. And that's the evidence people can look for to tell us apart. Or maybe my face is just slightly fuller than my twins. But you wouldn't notice unless you see us next to each other. So Thomas needs more specific data points from Jesus in order to believe these claims. He wants to have the assurance of faith. But until he does, his doubt doesn't allow him to believe. And he says, you know, guys, my data points are going to be that I can actually put my hand in the wound in Jesus' hand and the wound in Jesus' side. And because Thomas needs this, he has to wait longer. He has to wait longer for certainty. As he waits 
for certainty, all he has is his attentive doubt, doubt that's just paying attention and on the lookout for God to show himself. Now, like Thomas, you and I, we get doubtful and unbelieving even while we're on the lookout for reassurance from God that Jesus lives, that he reigns over all the things in our lives and is working out all the things, right? That he hasn't left us alone to figure out our relationships or our vocations, our future, our jobs, a chronic illness. Um, we're looking for reassurance all the time, aren't we? That God is at work in our lives. And depending how much doubt you personally have, you may need more reassurance from God than the person you're sitting next to this morning. Because it's hard to be at peace when we're attending to doubt. And we want God to show up in specific ways so that he can put our doubt to rest. But God often makes us wait. How many of you guys have been kept waiting for reassurance from God? Maybe we had to attend to doubt longer than we wanted to. I don't know why God does that. I don't know why he makes us wait for that. St. Ignatius of Loyola said, maybe while we're watching and waiting for God's consolation, maybe God's testing us. Um, Father Thomas Green said, that might be God just purifying us from this expectation that we're in control of our relationship with God. Maybe he allows us to wait so we realize he's God and we're not. Maybe he's teaching us. This would be a great coffee shop conversation sometime if we want to talk about why does God do this? Why does it seem like he hides for a while? One of the clients that I coach um, had to wait a really long time for God to encounter her doubt. And she said I could share this story with you guys this morning. Um, but uh, she grew up in a church. She was a PK, a pastor's kid. And um, there were often speakers who would come in through um, the church uh, in the service. These speakers might um, at times minister to different individuals in the church. So if you know anything about the gift of prophecy that's talked about in the New Testament, it's being able to encourage someone and build somebody up, but with the inspiration from the Lord, like maybe knowing things that you couldn't naturally know and encouraging that person uh, to, be, um, to, be in, uh, to continue on in God. And so they, these people would come and they would single out people in the congregation and be like, I just want to really encourage you. God has shown me that you're really good at this and it's a blessing to people and I want you to keep going. Or like, hey, you over there, God's just put you on my heart and I just want to say he sees this about your life and he knows you're asking these questions and, and I want to encourage you. So my client said that um, people would come in year after year, many times a year, and they would single out every other teenager in her close peer group except for her. Like all the kids of the pastors, all the kids of the church leaders that she was in a like a tight circle with, she would never be called out. And she started to wonder, like, why, why wouldn't God single me out? Why, why is he reassuring them supernaturally? Uh, why isn't he saying to me, I know you and I see you and keep going and good job? And so um, this went on for years and it never happened for her. And she told me she struggled so much with this, wondering why. Why wouldn't God speak to her that way? And we were, one day several months ago, because I know her well and I know some of the things she struggles with with doubt, I asked her the question, you know, if one of those speakers had singled you out, would you have received it well? And she thought for a minute and she said, 
no, <laughs> I wouldn't have actually because she is wired uniquely. She actually needed God to reveal himself to her in a different way, in a specific way that would speak to her doubt. And she had to wait for it. Thomas had to wait for his data point he was looking for. A whole week goes by, probably the longest week in the history of their lives, and none of them seem to see Jesus again. They're still locked up in the house, perhaps still struggling with doubt. Not that Jesus was alive, but that it changed anything for them. So they're waiting, they're hiding, the doors are locked, and then Jesus shows up again, walking through walls, teleporting, we don't know. He says, peace be with you. He looks at Thomas and he says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas's response is so different than the other disciples a week earlier. They just, we were just told, yeah, they, they were glad when they saw the Lord. Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. He knows in that moment, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And we don't know if Thomas actually ended up needing to put his hand in Jesus' side or his wound. Uh, it doesn't seem like he needed to at this point because Jesus revealed that he'd been listening. Jesus revealed that he knew the data point Thomas needed. And he gave him something else. You know, He showed up and he spoke to him and let him know, I, I heard you when you said what you needed. And when he gets this encounter with Jesus, his unique needs seem satisfied and his conviction about who Jesus is seems to like grow his faith leaps and bounds beyond the other disciples at this point. And worship comes out of his mouth. Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are God. Now Jesus goes on to say, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Well, blessed, happier, more fortunate are those who... Uh, believe without seeing. They're not going to carry around all this angst that you've had. It is a lot easier, isn't it, to be someone who can believe without too much doubt, without needing a supernatural wonder to occur. However, attentive doubt over time, plus the presence of Jesus, is the soil from which great faith grows in our lives. God loves to grow our faith that way. Jesus loves Thomas enough to give him what he needed so that his faith would develop because Thomas was stuck in his doubt and Jesus wanted to rescue him from that. And I think Jesus wants to rescue us from our doubt too. He wants to speak to us in a unique way. Um, I've been following Jesus long enough to know that the way that God wants to work out situations in my life, they don't always look the way that I envision and they don't always happen in the time frame that I expect them to happen in. And because I'm coming to accept that a little bit more about God and the way that he works, I don't always put specific timelines on request to God, or I don't always say, like, can you make it work exactly this way? Now, sometimes I do, but a lot of times I change my prayers, and I say, God, could you just give me a sign that you've got this under control? Can you just give me a sign that you're working? And I'm going to give you guys an example. It's a real-life story from a month ago that concerns our church. And I don't often talk about finances and things like that, but I want to be more transparent with you guys because this is your church too. Um, but I was praying about City Church finances in March. And if you're a regular giver at City Church, you probably got your donation statement from the first quarter um, in a letter just so you know that in our first quarter, expenses exceeded our income quite a bit. 
mostly in January and February. And it was to the point that I was like, if this keeps going, this is not sustainable. And around March 15th, our finances looked that they were trending the same way. And I was like up at night, you know, like, God, um, what does this mean for the future of City Church? And I know that God sometimes delivers in the 11th hour. I know that he sometimes brings us provision in the 11th hour. And it wasn't the 11th hour yet, but I was still worried. Um, and so I started praying near the middle of March. God, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how you're going to address the situation. But Lord, um, would you make it so that we're in the black this month instead of in the red? And I just need one sign from you that you're doing this. Would you just move on someone's heart to give to the church today? Like, I don't care if they live out of state. I don't care if they live in town. I don't care if they attend city church. But Lord, would you just move in someone's heart to give so that, you know, I know that you're on this. And guess what? A few hours later, someone that didn't attend city church at this time, hasn't for six months or more, made a donation to the church. That's not normal. And that blew my mind. And I was like, okay, you heard me. That's the sign. You're working. Well, guess what? There was doubt the next day. Like, I was still worried. You know, like, and so I prayed again. I was like, God, that could have just been a fluke. But Lord, would you just give me another sign? Would you just give me another sign that you're working? Would you just move in somebody's heart today to give a donation to the church? I don't care if they live out of state. I don't care if they go to our church. Just do this so I know that you're at work. And guess what? Within two hours, there was an unexpected donation from someone giving to the church. And that happened three days in a row. And this is not normal. The Lord blew my mind. Now, here's the thing. We were not in the black in March, but we were only $4 in the red, which is significant compared to like $900 in the red, okay? So I tell you this story for two reasons. One, it's related to my sermon, and I, I just felt like this is a great example of what I'm talking about. Two, it's a great opportunity to share with you guys, you know, here's where we're at with the church. Please be praying, you know, for the church. Pray and ask the Lord to lead you and how you might um, contribute to the ministry and um, make room in your budget. But my main point in sharing this with you is to say that it is okay to tell God how you need him to help you with your doubt. It is okay to get really specific with God and say, God, could you give me this sign that you're with me? I don't need you to fix the whole thing, but could you just reassured me in some way that you are working in this relationship. Um, Lord, that you are with me in this health crisis, that you really do forgive me and call me righteous even though I've sinned against you and I've hurt other people. The Lord does not condemn you for asking for what you need. And in fact, it seems to be his unique pleasure to show up for you and for me in ways that are uniquely comforting. Can you imagine how Jesus must have felt just showing up to Thomas and being like, I got you, you know, like I heard you and I'm delighted to tell you, I heard you. He knows you uniquely. He knows that, you know, what Molly needs is different than what Andres needs for, for reassurance and what, uh, what Amy needs and Lydia and, and Jason and Rachel, like we all have unique needs for reassurance from God. How does faith grow? It grows by attending to our doubt, looking and watching and waiting, paying attention for when the presence of Jesus does come and reassure us, waiting for the Lord to reveal himself to us. 
So I have three invitations for you guys today. The first one is to ask the Lord for what you need specifically in order to help you in your greatest area of doubt. Think about what that might be. What's something that would reassure you in an area of doubt? Maybe not all the answers are going to be solved. Maybe you're fine to know God's the Lord of the universe. He's going to work this out how he works it out. But what is the thing that would reassure you that he's involved? The second invitation is to be doubtful, but be attentive. Be watchful and wait for the Lord to show himself to you. Don't give up waiting and watching. And then the third invitation is to leave room for the doubts of others. Don't try to talk people out of their doubt. It's okay. If Jesus can handle their doubt, we can too. You know, it's okay. I want to give us a moment of silence right now to just respond to that first invitation. Just 30 seconds to a minute. I want to just let you have the opportunity, the gift right now to tell the Lord what it is you need to help him with your doubt. You've got something in your life you're worried is not under his control and you need God to reassure you, whether it's your marriage, a relationship, your job, family members. Let God know right now what it is that you need reassurance of to know that the resurrected Jesus lives and he reigns over all of these things. Is everyone attentively doubtful this morning? Let's go into communion, attending to our doubt, but also with expectancy that Jesus will show himself to us. You know, it's God's good pleasure to reveal himself to us, and he did this most notably and most profoundly through Jesus, through his ministry and his crucifixion and his resurrection. He did it so that you and I could believe in him and have life in his name, just so John, as John just beautifully put it. So this juice and the wafer that we have today, you know, it, it symbolizes the, the wine and the oven-baked bread or the, like, the fire-baked bread that Jesus and his disciples ate. But as we take them together, we remember that these elements also point to the very real presence of Jesus with us right now today. The Apostle Paul, he reminded early Christians of how Jesus instructed his followers to take communion. He said on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the bread. After supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. I'd like you, if you're sitting next to one, someone today, to turn and look at them and say, Your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name.
and let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you that you love us and you made us for yourself. And when we'd become just subject to sin and to death, you sent Jesus to share our human nature and to live and die as one of us, to put sin to death, to put death to death, and to reconcile us to you. I pray, Lord, that you would refresh our faith and refresh our bodies and our minds and hearts as we um, go out of this place today to, to do the work that you've given us to do and to attend with our doubt to your presence and to the things that you'll reveal to us. In your name we pray this. Amen. I'm going to ask you guys to join me in the prayer of St. Francis this morning. It should be up on this, on this slide here. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Lord, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it's in dying that we're born to eternal life. Amen.